mysteries are stories that focus on, you know, a puzzling crime or a perplexing situation that somehow needs to be solved. Many mysteries are, are solved and involved uh, what's called like a whodunit scenario, right? Meaning the mystery revolves around uncovering who the culprit is or who the criminal is. So from books like Agatha Christie or as a kid, maybe you read the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew mysteries. I love those. TV shows like uh, Unsolved Mysteries or one of my favorites, Scooby-Doo and the Mystery Machine. Or those cops and courtroom shows. Um, Mystery, for us, is a puzzle to be solved. Just put all the clues together and you can solve the mystery. When our passage today, the word mystery is used. But it doesn't mean what you think it means. A biblical mystery is not a puzzle to be solved as we search for clues and evidence. No, a biblical mystery is a truth known to God that he discloses in his time. It's God's knowledge revealed to us. Romans 16, 25 and 26 defines a biblical mystery for us. It says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations. What is a biblical mystery? A secret kept for long ages by God but now he has disclosed it and made it known. A biblical mystery is simply God revealing his will, revealing his plan, revealing his purpose. So with that in mind, uh, let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 11, starting at verse 25. Follow along as we read, and God reveals his mystery to us. Romans chapter 11, starting at verse 25. The scripture says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Father, now as we have read these words, we have just that simple prayer that you would use the Holy Spirit to bring these words alive to us, to teach us, to challenge us and change us, to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. All right, well, as we look at this passage today, let's look at four steps. The first is the presentation of the mystery in verses 25 through 26a. Second is biblical support for the mystery in 26 through 27. Third is the explanation of the mystery. And then fourth is the exaltation that results from the mystery. Well, before we look at the presentation of the the mystery, Paul starts off verse 25 with a warning to the church. As one translation puts it, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. In verse 18, Paul warns against becoming arrogant. In verse 20, he warns against becoming proud. And now in verse 25, he warns against being conceited, about being wise in your own sight. One of the reasons he wants the church to know the mystery revealed by God is that it would help them to not think more highly of themselves than they ought. Being unaware of this truth could lead to conceit, for often ignorance, not knowing or not understanding the truth, can lead to being unrightly proud of yourself. One wrote, knowledge is conductive to humility, for humility is honesty, not hypocrisy. The complete antidote to pride is truth. Paul anticipates that the knowledge of this now revealed mystery from God will bring more humility, will bring more unity to the church, will bring more brotherhood. He even calls them brothers. This is an emotional term pointing to the intimacy that we have as family in Christ, but it's also a familial word, a word stressing the equality and the oneness that we have in God as our Father, as we all together as brothers and sisters, all in one family of God. See, once the Jews and Gentiles correctly understand their position in relation to each other, Paul is saying there's nothing to boast about for all that remains is family. All that remains is unity. All that remains is oneness in Christ. One person, one tree. What Paul specifically wants them to know, as he says in verse 25, is this mystery. The secret from God that Paul is now openly revealing to them all. There are three truths revealed in this mystery. The first is that a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Now, this first truth, this partial hardening that's come upon Israel, is not new. It is, it is 
um, already been talked about here in chapter 11. Earlier in chapter 11 in verses 5 and verse 7, Paul has already taught that there's only a remnant, only a small part of the Jewish people chosen by God's grace who have come to faith in Jesus as their Messiah. As verse 7 says, the elect, the chosen by God, obtained it, but the rest were hardened. God handed his people over to their own stubbornness. He handed them over to their own rejection of Christ. Israel's hardening had had steeped their own hearts into spiritual insensitivity. 2 Corinthians 3, 14 through 16 describes this hardening as a veil. It says, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. For some of the Jewish people, God has lifted the veil over their hearts and and they have turned to the Lord. There is a remnant. But for the large part, the veil remains and their rejection remains. The first part of the mystery is the continued hardened hearts of the large part of the nation of Israel to Christ. The second part of the mystery, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, tells us that this partial hardening is only temporary. It is until. Until points to a specific point in time. One wrote, until refers to time. Fullness indicates completion. And together those terms denote impermanence, transience. The hardening will only last for God's divinely determined duration. It began when Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah and Savior. And it will end when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in until the complete number of elect Gentiles have come to salvation. We must remember that in this time of the hardening of the large part of Israel, the gospel has not been thwarted. Not at all. No, it prevails. It is strong and powerful to the chosen remnant of the Jews and to the many millions upon millions of Gentiles. It is being preached throughout the world and more and more people are hearing God's word and are responding in faith to Christ. Amazing revivals have occurred in diverse places all over our globe, on every continent, in every corner. And God continues to bring in daily thousands upon thousands into his family. And we, his church, continue to send out missionaries to the world. We continue to reach our community and our nations for Christ. We must not forget the great plan of God, of his great patience, of his great amazing grace, as he continues to bring people from all over the earth to himself. You see, this is our calling. This is our mission. I fear that sometimes we Christians long so much for the end, when all the time what God wants us to long for is for his mission. For right now, the spreading of the gospel. Yes, as Christians, we're supposed to live with the expectation of the imminent return of Christ. Christians have done that for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But the expectation is supposed to drive us to fulfill God's mission. 
to spread the gospel. Not as a way of escape from the corruption and the frustrations of this world. This is an important point of application. Do you want to insulate yourself and get away from the corruption of this world? More than you want to take the gospel to the world in need around us? Does the wickedness of the world drive you to get away? Or does it drive you to get engaged in offering them they so desperately need? Jesus Christ. You see, we need to get our heads out of the news and our self-focus and onto the good news and other focus. We need to get our heads out of the news and our self-focus and onto the good news and other focus. Here's our mission. Here's our marching orders. Here's the great directive, Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Would you with me, even now, recommit your life to God's mission for his world as your mission for his world? The fullness of the Gentiles is not yet complete. And how thankful we are to God for that. For his continued patience. For his amazing grace. For putting us on mission. To share the gospel, his good news. R.C. Sproul used the olive tree analogy from the previous verses that we looked at in Romans 11 to illustrate this point. God begins with the Jewish nation as his chosen people, he said. The Jewish nation in large measure falls into apostasy. The olive tree that God cultivated becomes rotten and branches are cut off. But God doesn't cut down the tree, but he grafts in the wild olive branches. He brings Gentiles into the community of faith, and he has a definite number of such. When the last wild olive branch is grafted onto the tree... Then God is going to do something again with the original tree. See, point one is that the hardening is partial. Point two of the mystery is that the hardening is temporary until. Now, point three of the mystery is that when the fullness of the Gentiles has become complete, there is yet another fullness. All Israel will be saved. There are three key words in this very small phrase, right? All, Israel, and saved. So what does Israel mean? Israel means what Israel means throughout the chapter. Clearly in verse 25, Israel means Israel because it's contrasted to the Gentiles. So clearly in verse 26, Israel means Israel. As one commentator said, it is exegetically impossible to give to Israel in this verse any other denotation than that which belongs to the term throughout this chapter. Israel. The next word is all, right? All can mean two things. Does, does all mean every Jewish person without exception? Or does all mean Israel, the Jewish people as a whole? I think it's better to think of all as meaning Israel as a whole, as a Jewish people, Israel as a great superlative mass of people, because we already know there are already saved 
Israelites, Jewish people, that are part of God's chosen remnant by God's grace. Well, this next word is saved. Following uh, the following quote in the verses there, in verses 26 and 27 from our passage, is from the Old Testament, and it actually specifically defines for us what saved means. Saved means that the deliverer, the rescuer, the savior comes to take away their sins. The deliverer will come to bring his people to repentance according to God's covenant promises. This is not a national salvation. This is not political salvation. This is Christ's salvation. It is salvation as it always is, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. What was Paul's focus for his kinsmen? What should be our focus for the Jews? Their salvation, the repentance of their sins, and the receiving of their Messiah. I believe when Paul received uh, you know, and revealed God's mystery that all Israel would be saved, that's when the, the start of this crescendo of praise with Paul, that Paul lifts up his soul into this great doxology of praise at the end of the chapter. This truth of God's revealed mystery, the truth of God's amazing plan of salvation filled Paul to overflow and worship and wonder. Because just remember back to how chapter 9 started. Remember, Paul was in great sorrow. He was in unceasing anguish in his heart for the salvation of his kinsmen. Even to the point, he says, of wishing for the impossible, that he might be accursed, that he might be cut off from Christ, so that they might be saved. Then... In chapter 10, in verse 1, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, my kinsmen, is that they may be saved. Then he exclaims in verse 13, quoting from Joel 2, 32, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Remember how just earlier here in Romans eleven fourteen, 14, how how Paul wants God to use his ministry to the Gentiles to somehow awaken a, a jealousy within the Jews for a desire for Christ. And what does he say in verse 14? Thus to save some of them. Do you catch what's going on throughout these chapters? Paul's heart, Paul's prayer, Paul's goal is that his kinsmen would be saved. And now as we come to the end of this section, in verse 26, Paul reveals this amazing mystery. All Israel will be saved. God will lift the veil and his people will turn to Christ. It will be in a, an immense moment of spiritual life, of life from the dead. The culmination of the new covenant of God with his people as recorded for us in Jeremiah 31. 31 through 34, where it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when, when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Oh, the the great salvation of our God coming to fruition for his people. What beautiful and inspiring and amazing truth. Yet, folks, I think so often when we come to this passage in Romans, we tend to miss this main point. We start to get to this part of the mystery And we start to think eschatology. How does all this fit into end times? When when Paul got to this point in the the mystery, what is he thinking? Soteriology. How does it fit into God's great plan of salvation? For Paul, all Israel is about salvation, about the gospel, about coming to Christ, about evangelism. For Paul, this revealed mystery was not about when it would happen, but that amazingly it will happen. His focus wasn't on God revealing his timing, but on God revealing salvation. This is why he bursts out into praise to God out of the depth of the riches of his wisdom, of his unsearchableness, of his plans. Paul's praise isn't about the timing, about when it will happen, but that it will certainly happen. Here's the mystery. When the temporary partial hardening of Israel is over, Israel will in mass turn to Christ as their Messiah and be saved. That's the simple, clear teaching of this passage. And that should be our focus of this passage. This is now revealed. Mystery is not about when it would happen, but that, oh, how gloriously, someday, this is actually going to happen. Do you see this? When I saw this in my study this week, it totally changed. I was looking at this passage and and in preparation for my sermon. I've been trained and retrained and retrained, and trained some more, I'm sure, in the process of good exegetical preaching. That it's not just getting to the truth of the passage right, but it's also in getting the tone of the passage right. We do, Paul, and we do this passage a disservice when we overly focus on the eschatology of the passage. God's amazing plan has been revealed. God's amazing plan has been revealed. And what is it? It's salvation. More and more people, including the Jews, hundreds of thousands, millions upon millions upon millions come into faith in Jesus Christ. Old Testament prophecy coming true. God is not defeated. God wins. God reigns. God's people are saved. This passage is an overwhelmingly truth about the salvation of our God, about God reaping a mass harvest of souls for his son from his people. Oh, the great grace of our God. Do you see it? 
Do you see what, what spurs Paul on to this great doxology? 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise. No way. Not as some count slowness. His slowness is what? Patience. His slowness is, is grace and mercy. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God has sent his son to bring salvation. And that's exactly what he does. How awesome is that? How awesome is that? Now, we've already looked at our second main point, actually, as I was going through the midst of our first point, that the deliverer will come to bring his people to repentance, to take away their sins, and to see them as saved by grace through faith. So on to our third main point of our outline in our passage today, the explanation of the mystery. So here, there are two points in the summary. Point one, God's election is irrevocable. Verses 28 and 29, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What a word, right? Irrevocable. There are two contrasting ways that Israel is described in this passage, very contrasting as it regards the gospel. In verse 28, they are enemies. In verse 28, they are loved. You see, on the one hand, the Jews are, are not only rejecting the gospel, but they're opposing it. They're doing their best to stop it. In relation to the gospel, they are enemies. But on the other hand, the Jews are God's chosen people. Their descendants are the patriarchs whom God gave his, his covenant and all those great promises. So in relation to election, because of God's calling... And his promises are irrevocable. They are loved. And they're brought to salvation. The fact is that God never goes back on his gifts or calling. They are irrevocable. R.C. Sproul wrote, God made a covenant with his people. And he made promises to save them as a nation. In his electing grace, he keeps that covenant and will bring about the restoration of the Jewish people. God chose the Jews as his people. And the purpose which he had in view can never be altered. It was his purpose that they should be his people forever. And for that to take place, there must be a future restoration and their inclusion in his kingdom. This covenant of God will be fully and finally accomplished. Well, next in verses 30 and 31, we see God's mercy is for the disobedient. They say, for, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that they might, might by the mercy shown to you, also receive mercy. So us, right? Us Gentile Christians. We're supposed to kind of be saying to ourselves. Now we were once disobedient. We, we once didn't care about God at all. But God showed us his mercy. Because of their disobedience. Because of their rejection to Christ. Salvation's floodgates entered into the Gentiles. So now the Jews... 
who are being disobedient, just like we were, so that the same mercy that God has shown us would now be shown to them, and they would receive the mercy. You see, if God can be merciful to us through their disobedience, surely God can be merciful to them through which the mercy that he has shown to us. Now the summary verse there in verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Our disobedience has consigned us. It's a, it's a word used about prison. It's consigned us in the prison of sin. Where there is no escape for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. How do we get out of this prison of sin? Mercy. By God's mercy. And only by God's mercy. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. But instead, he then gives us his grace what we don't deserve. All here at the end of verse 32 is not all without exception. Like as in all, as in every person. For sadly we know that as Jesus said, wide is the way and easy is a path that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. All here at the end of verse 32 is all without distinction. Remember he's been talking about Jew and Gentile. It's meaning both Jew and Gentile. God's family is full of both Jew and Gentile, all without distinction. Verse 32 now is the end of Paul's argument that he started at the beginning of Romans chapter 9. And what does it end in? Mercy. Mercy is actually a key word in chapters 9 through 11. And it shows up in the very first, at the very beginning of Romans chapter 12 verse 1. In the summary statement as, as Paul writes and he looks back at what he has just said. He says, I appeal to you Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Well, that brings us to our fourth step, the exaltation that results from the mystery. The revelation of God's mystery, the salvation of the Gentiles, the salvation of the Jews, all by God's mercy, all by God's plan, all through God's election, all by grace, through faith, overwhelms the heart and the mind of Paul. So much so that he writes of the rhapsody within his soul for who God is, for what he has done, for what he will do. This great work of God is not academic to Paul. This isn't just theological to him. This is not just information. No, for Paul, it's personal. It's real. It's inspiring. It moves his heart. So much so that he, as he reflects on how awesome God is, he breaks into perhaps his greatest written words of praise and doxology. He gasps for a breath. And he says, oh, the depth of God. Oh, the depth of God. Beloved, that should be us too. The gospel of God should make us gasp for a breath and say, oh, 
The mercy of our God, the mercy and grace of our God should make us gasp for a breath and say, oh, the love of our God, the, the plan and purpose of God in our lives, his election, his choosing of us should make us cry out, oh, the glory of our God. The revealing of God's mystery, his truth given to us, should make us gasp for a breath and say, oh, the salvation of our God. We exclaim glory to God in wonder and amazement as our hearts and minds are flooded with worship. As we contemplate the reality of who our God is and all that God has done, as Paul's heart and mind are reflecting on the superlatively awesomeness of God, he overflows with these words. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been counselor to him? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him And to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. First, Paul exalts the depth of God's wisdom and knowledge. Depth, right? His understanding, God's understanding is so deep that you could never get to the bottom of it. You can never plumb the depths of God's knowledge. The depth of God's wisdom is unreachable. Then he says his decisions are untraceable. One cannot trace the unending layer upon layer upon layer of the consequences of his choices. Then he says his ways are unfathomable. We can't understand the complexity of God's actions. Then he says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? You know what the answer is to that is? No one. No one. God never needs any counsel ever. He needs no advice. He needs no instruction. He is perfect in his knowledge. He is perfect in his ways. Isaiah 55, 8-9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts, and my ways higher than your ways. Who can know the mind of the Lord? No one. He is so vast to be beyond our complete comprehension, indescribable, in comprehensible who has given gifts to him that he might be repaid what's the answer no one God is a debtor to no one God owes no one nothing not a thing yet did you see how important this is every act of God is done by his grace he owes no one Nothing. Every act of God is done by his choice, by his love, out of his character. For the sovereignty of our God is complete. 
All things are from him. He's the creator of all things. All things are through him. He is the sustainer of all things. The very existence of all things is predicated, is based on the sovereignty of our God. All things are to him. Or maybe better yet, unto him. For he's the reason why all things exist. God is the first cause. God is the effective cause. God is the final cause of everything. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Oh, to him be glory forever. What's the chief end of creation? To glorify God. What's the chief end of the Trinity? To glorify each other. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God. Oh, beloved, what's the chief end of your life? To bring glory to the God who loved you, who saved you, who sent his son for you. Do you see the rhapsody that engulfed Paul's soul is the salvation that is offered through Jesus Christ. Johann Sebastian Bach. Perhaps you've heard of him. Did you know that he was a strong, committed follower of Jesus Christ? He totally believed that the gift of music that he had was given to him by God and that he was to use it for the glory of God. He was, as we know him, a brilliant composer. But did you know that in his day, that's not what he was known for? In his day, he was known for being a church organist. When he died in 1750, his music was considered old-fashioned, and it had been mostly forgotten by the people. It wasn't until 80 years after his death that his music was rediscovered. In 1829, the composer Felix Mendelssohn found a copy of Bach's St. Matthew's Passion, the story of Jesus' crucifixion and death, and decided to perform it. Bach only became famous nearly 100 years after his death. But I can assure you that he was okay with that. Because all that he wrote was never for him. It was never about him. It was all for Christ. So much so that at the top of the page of his composition, he would write these letters. Before he wrote anything, he would write these two letters, J.J., which in Latin stand for Yesu Yuva, which means Jesus, help me. And then at the end of his composition, he would write these letters, S-D-G, which in Latin stood for Soli Deo Gloria, which means to God alone be the glory. He would start off his compositions asking for Jesus' help. He would end after writing this amazing music, 
he would say, solely, Deo, Gloria, all and only for God's glory. Just like Paul, as he ends in praise, to him be glory forever. Beloved, this is our great challenge today. This is our great challenge to set our gaze upon Jesus Christ. To reset our minds, our thinking on Jesus Christ. To reset our hearts, our emotions, our desires, our wills, our choices on Jesus Christ. Oh, our hearts cry out. Oh, the salvation of our God. Isn't it a great thing to be a Christian? I mean, isn't it a great thing to be a follower of Christ? I'm going to leave you with this challenge. We should wake up every day saying, JJ, Yesu, Yuvia, Jesus, help me. We should go to bed every night saying, SDG, solely Deo Gloria, all and only for God's glory. May it be. Let's pray together. Father, now I'm just so moved by the by the weakness of my message. The frailty, the thinness of it, to even come close to talk about the glory of salvation in Jesus Christ. And so we come to you. In the frailty of who we are, Thankful, unbelievably thankful for Jesus Christ. Lord, challenge us in such a way that we might just catch a glimpse uh, to gaze anew on Jesus Christ in a way that fills us with such awe that we might actually change our lives that we might actually walk in obedience and love for Jesus Christ. Why? Because of the indebtedness we have to the salvation, to the glory of God, to Jesus Christ, our Savior. Oh God, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.